Thanks very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. Um, I am based in the Hero Centre. I'm a philosopher by training. Uh, I'm mostly interested in issues around kind of health promotion and what lengths it's acceptable for the state to go to to kind of interfere in people's lives in order to encourage healthy behaviours and kind of improve public health and those kinds of questions. Um, so some of the things that I'll be talking to today are kind of broadly about chronic disease and health promotion and I'm aware that this, I don't know that much about your group but the name includes obesity so I'm suggesting you're probably more interested in obesity as a particular subject. Um, I hope what I have to say is of interest and kind of all relates to obesity but I will talk a little bit more broadly about things like kind of smoking cessation and alcohol consumption and those kinds of ideas as well. Okay, um, so this talk um, came from, it's, it's part of a, it's based on a paper that's kind of in progress and that came out of a symposium we held at the Brochure Centre in Geneva about a year and a half ago and we were talking about ideas to do with kind of vice and virtue in health and moralising about health and so um, I kind of had prepared this for that symposium and then have sat on it for about a year and not done anything with it so it was excellent to get the prompt to come back to it and have a think about it again so um, I look forward to kind of the discussion afterwards and getting your take on on the sorts of things that I'm going to talk about so I don't normally do PowerPoint slides I'm kind of hopeless at them so I think there are 10 in total and that includes the cover slide and the last slide with thanks written on it so um, don't get too distracted by it. I did want to include, there's a few pictures I think are kind of good to look at, so, so hence, the, hence I've done a presentation at all. Um, so this is the board structure of the talk. I'll go through some of the background, which might be quite familiar to you, but I'll kind of run through it briefly anyway, um, to do with kind of chronic disease and a focus on behaviour in order to promote health. And then talk a little bit about this concept of healthism. Um, and kind of roughly outline what that means and why it might be important in this context. I'll then move on to talk a little bit about moralisation, um, and again, like a little bit about the concept and kind of clarifying what we mean when we talk about moralisation, and then say something about its relevance to, to um, health promotion and behaviour change. And then I'll link these things through moral responsibility, which is a kind of tangled concept in philosophy, um, but uh, I'll, I, I won't go into too much depth about the kind of the messiness of moral responsibility, but I'll just kind of briefly talk about how I think that plays a role here. And then finally, I want to say something about why I think we should resist approaches to health promotion which are, are likely to kind of encourage moralisation, um, particularly when health promotion is being conducted via the state, by these kind of public governance organisations. <clears throat> Okay, um, so, so to start with this kind of background, this idea of uh, why, why I'm interested in moralisation, why I think it's um, an interesting topic for someone who, who looks at health promotion and ethical dimensions of health promotion. So chronic disease has become a really significant burden for healthcare systems all over, all over the world. I think... You can find a WHO report that says any disease that you're interested in is the most important healthcare worry of the modern day, but they definitely say it about chronic disease. Um, and this seems to be through a combination of kind of socioeconomic factors, changing people's 
lives, having an influence on, on how people live, um, as well as, you know, kind of a good news story about the success of tackling things like infectious disease um, and certain sorts of improvements in health, which have meant that, that a greater proportion is, is now, a greater proportion of disease is now um, falls within chronic disease, which is, these are things like um, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, lung disease, various forms of cancer kind of get included um, in this category. This is uh, coincided with changing patterns in public health. So um, it's been the social and health historians have described this kind of shift from public health, which is focused on prevention and eradication of disease, to um, more of a focus on promoting health through changes in individual risk factor exposure. And uh, this has been described by a sociologist called Paul, Paul Crawshaw as the behavioural term. I'm not quite sure if he, he's coined this kind of description, but he's the one that I've come across using it. So he, he pinpoints this behavioural term as somewhere in the kind of late 20th century and describes it as this shift to um, incorporate these kind of neoliberal values of individual choice and empowerment, anti-paternalism, non-interference, um, valuing individual autonomy uh, into social policy, including health policy, so including kind of attempts to promote health. And this has involved a move away from more kind of community-based programmes to these individual choice empowerment um, strategies. And a lot of that has focused on providing information and educating people about health and about the harms of certain risk factors, so things like smoking, alcohol consumption, lack of physical activity, unhealthy diets, um, on their long-term health prospects. <clears throat> so a lot, of, a lot of this health promotion has gone on through um, information and education, and then there's been obviously other, other approaches to trying to promote health, and these more typically take the form of kind of regulation. So we have hard and soft regulation, where hard regulation is kind of legal restrictions, so we can implement kind of coercive policies um, to regulate what people can do, what companies can sell, how they can promote their products. Soft regulation, which is a little bit more light touch, so it might involve kind of voluntary agreements. Um, something like the public health responsibility deal, if people have heard of this, that would be seen as kind of soft regulation. Um, so there's various forms of regulation that can be used in order to uh, try to change behaviour and promote health. And then there's also this somewhat more recent move towards using things like nudges and kind of unconscious influences to change behaviour. So um, you might well be familiar with Thaler and Sunstein's <coughs> book, Nudge, that uh, came out in 2008 and has kind of been quite popular and picked up by various, I think, um, Sunstein became Barack Obama's regulatory czar and Richard Thaler was chatting with David Cameron and, um, and is now, of course, a Nobel Prize winner. And um, so it's had quite a... It sort of captured the imagination of policymakers in some way. So <clears throat> what's kind of interesting about these different approaches to health promotion is that those, those last ones I mentioned, kind of regulation and nudges have received quite a lot of attention from people like me, from ethicists interested in how we go about promoting health, wanting to kind of complain about the way it's done and criticise things. Whereas this more typical or kind of, kind of ongoing, this, this continuous use of information and education in order, to, in order to kind of raise awareness and more recently kind of empower healthy choices 
goes fairly uncriticised in my experience. There hasn't been much of an appetite for kind of um, raising any problems with this. It's seen as quite benign, um, seen as kind of promoting autonomy, uh, being respectful, all of these kinds of nice things. And I want to kind of question this, whether or not such an approach to health promotion is as benign as it maybe superficially seems. Um, and I will be suggesting that moralisation is maybe a way in which it's not quite so unproblematic. Um, okay, so to move on to this concept of healthism that I mentioned. Um, so so healthism, healthism uh, is a way of describing this idea that health messages and um, concerns about promoting health has become very pervasive in society. And there's a lot of talk about health, there's a lot of focus on health, and it's become highly valued, this pursuing ever more and better health. <clears throat> um, I see this tendency to point out risk factors and alert people to their existence as part of this, as part of this kind of movement of healthism, this development of healthism. So healthism is uh, a term that was first coined by um, Bob Crawford, in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. And um, he identifies kind of two, two parts of healthism. So we have the first part of healthism is this increasing expansion of the health-related domain. So you can see this really clearly in the sorts of things that I'm talking about, these risk factors. So pointing to more and more things and like, oh, if you eat you know, raw bean sprouts, that could have an effect on your health. Or if you walk... 9,999 steps a day that won't be good but if you walk 10,000 steps a day that will be good for your health like these kinds of just like everything is now um, attached to some kind of health I think someone's written a recipe book that's like all of the things that could promote your health like kind of a spoof a spoof take on this and the the Daily Mail reader which is this kind of funny Twitter account that I follow often has the the updated cancer cancer list which is all the things that the Daily Mail has recently said cause cancer um, and every week they get a new list of like 10 or 12 different things that now cause cancer. So it's this kind of extension of everything being health-related. The second part of healthism is um, this kind of elevation of health to being a super value. So this prime value that every sensible person should want more and more of. Um, and that failure to pursue greater health is somehow kind of deviant or, or indeed a failure. I think it's kind of built into how I phrase it. Um, so I've got, uh, oh, I'm pressing the wrong thing. So this is a quote um, from, Crawford's, from Crawford's paper in 1980. He's kind of capturing healthism, this, this, this aspect of healthism. So health has become not only a preoccupation, it has also become a pan-value or standard by which an expanding number of behaviours and social phenomena are judged. Less a means toward the achievement of other fundamental values, health takes on the quality of an end in itself. Good living is reduced to a health problem, just as health is expanded to include all that is good in life. <clears throat> um, and I think we can see these two dimensions of healthism as kind of mutually reinforcing as well. So uh, the extension of the domain of health-related encourages us to see that health must be surely so important because we're looking at everything as if it were health related and similarly the idea that health is so important means that we're constantly looking for ways that other things impact on health so there's this kind of cycle of um, mutually reinforcing healthism and I think um, that one element of this in the context of kind of health promotion and the sorts of um, 
behaviour change interventions that I'm interested in is this shift from seeing health as... I mean, there's this infamous World Health Organization definition of health, which is like not just freedom from disease, but complete mental and physical well-being or something, which is often criticised by people as just being like crazily broad. But compared to what we now seem to be working with, which is not just freedom from disease or complete mental and physical well-being, but freedom from any risk factor for disease, um, that definition of health seems to be kind of taking hold somewhat. So you're kind of unhealthy even if you're suffering no ill effects, but you have a certain number of risk factors, you're kind of, you're, you're pre-morbid in this way. Okay, <clears throat> so to move on to this idea of moralisation that I want to say a little bit about. Um, so it's a slightly tricky, I think it's a useful concept. It's slightly difficult for me um, as a philosopher because it hasn't been much discussed by uh, philosophical writers so there isn't a kind of clear literature that talks about moralisation and what it means and how we should define it and how important it is there's a little bit but not masses so, um, so and, and of course it's kind of fairly unproblematically used in everyday language so people know what you mean when you talk about moralisation but in order to use it philosophically it needs a little bit more clarity so in the social sciences um, it tends to be used to refer to a kind of a process of things moving from the non-moral domain into the moral domain. So things are identified as having moral value when previously they were seen as kind of morally neutral. It can happen um, that I'm taking this from Paul Rosen, so he's talked a little bit about that. And he talks about it happening at both individual and social levels, so society can come to see certain things as kind of newly holding moral significance, but so can an individual. So an individual can kind of go through this process of um, moralising a particular thing or a practice, whatever. Um, <clears throat> it's worth acknowledging, I think, that just because I'm a philosopher and I like to be clear about these things, <laughs> anything can in principle have moral relevance, so even really benign things. So um, if I have a coffee shop and I buy my coffee from supplier A rather than supplier B, that seems kind of morally neutral. We probably shouldn't take a kind of moral stance on that. But if we know that supplier A um, treats its workers really badly, it's very exploitative, it doesn't pay them a fair wage, there's terrible conditions that they have to work in, whereas supplier B um, is maybe marginally more expensive, but it has really great conditions for its workers, um, it has good kind of maternity pay in place and like the health packages um, I don't know what you need as a coffee as a coffee worker in this context but it might look like then my decision to use one over the other does kind of become morally relevant um, so in theory given certain contextual conditions anything can look like it's morally important but nonetheless there are kind of social norms at work and um, there are some things that just typically acquire moral significance in almost any context and some things that like, are often seen as sort of neutral, morally benign in some way. So that's moralisation. And then I want to use moralism in a slightly different way. So um, moralism or, or someone who's a moralist, uh, I'm going to use to refer to um, a more pejorative sense of applying moral standards. So the idea here is that there's something... Uh, kind of contentious or excessive in the way that moral standards are being applied. So moralism is this kind of questionable practice, whereas moralisation is more of a 
kind of, in theory at least, um, neutral process that's kind of happening, happening in the background. That doesn't mean it can't have good and bad effects, but like in and of itself, it's not, it's not necessarily um, have, have, it doesn't necessarily have any kind of positive or negative valence. So that's how I'm kind of setting it up. There will, of course, be questions, um, very important questions to address about how we identify the contentious application of moral standards. Like people often disagree on moral standards, um, but for now, I'll leave it as we'll just assume there's some easy way of identifying contentiousness, and we'll talk about that as moralism. <clears throat> so how does this relate to um, health and responsibility, this kind of moralising, moralisation? Um, so health is a domain that has often been very highly moralised. Uh, there's lots of discussion of, of, of kind of morally... Um, uh, laden, there's quite a lot of morally laden language used in relation to health um, and one example of this I've taken from um, this passage from Thomas and he describes it, this in relation to kind of religion in the church each of the church's seven deadly sins was conventionally associated in homiletic literature with a pathological condition of the body Pride, which was a swelling up, was symbolised by tumours and inflammation. Sloth led to dead flesh and palsy. Gluttony meant dropsy and a large belly. Lust produced fluxes and discharges, leprous skin, and by the 16th century, the pox. Avarice was associated with gout or dropsy, envy with jaundice, venom and fever, wrath with spleen, frenzy and madness. <clears throat> so this is quite an explicit link between certain sorts of disease conditions and... Um, and sins, moral sins. So, um, so that's one way in which health has been kind of linked with mor uh, kind of moralizing, moralization. But there's this flip side to it, which is where we see um, health conditions as somehow uh, the the kind of medicalization of certain conditions as releasing them from moral attributions. So um, I'm thinking of examples like addiction and the increasing tendency to see addiction as a kind of medical problem, as a health problem, um, seems to be an encouragement to, to not view it as kind of uh, a, moral, a moral sin in any kind of way, or the behaviours associated with that addiction as, being, as, as rendering the person kind of morally culpable or blameworthy. So, um, so in this case, there's something slightly else going on. With, with health and moralisation <coughs> and, and kind of medicalisation, these processes. And so I want to suggest that something like responsibility might be playing an important role here in determining whether or not medicalisation, being health-related, renders a particular condition or behaviour or person um, subject to moral criticism or praise or, or kind of releases them from... From, from moral criticism or blaze, um, praise. <clears throat> so, um, so moral responsibility. This, this is a... Many, many very, very smart philosophers have written an awful lot on moral responsibility. I don't really want to subject you to too much of it here, but, um, but it's worth saying a little bit because it's kind of important to the, the argument that I want to end up making. So moral responsibility is often seen as a necessary condition for attributing blame or praise to an agent. It might not be sufficient to do that, but it's often seen as necessary. 
And two conditions that we might need to, to have in place in order to identify moral responsibility um, are referred to as the control and the epistemic conditions. So the control condition of moral responsibility is the idea that um, in order to be held morally responsible for something, you had to be in control of You had to be in control of it. So um, you had to be in control of the behaviour that had this kind of bad effect in order to be morally responsible for that bad effect. The epistemic condition um, is a condition of kind of understanding and foreseeability. So in order to be morally responsible for something, you had to have an understanding of the consequences that your behaviour would have. So if you pull the trigger on a gun um, that you were... As to your knowledge was not loaded or loaded with blanks or for some other reason you had um, an expectation that it would harm anybody then you might be released from some of the moral responsibility should somebody be injured by that gun so if it was kind of you thought it was a stage prop or something and you can you can construct these construct these kind of scenarios where people are morally responsible because they couldn't reasonably be expected to foresee the consequences of their actions so we have these control and epistemic conditions for moral responsibility And what I want to suggest is that um, moralisation will depend to some extent on the perceived control and foreseeability of people's health-related behaviour. So if we see people as in control of their health behaviour, if we see them as having a good understanding of the likely health harms that will result from their behaviour, then we can see them as morally responsible for that behaviour and then we can kind of moralise that behaviour in this way. So that's the kind of the suggestion that I want to make. And I think that um, this particular approach to health promotion that I'm interested in, so education and information provision, seems to be doing a lot of the work that's required in order to make people seem um, in control and informed about their behaviour. And there's a lot of this going on, so... This is, um, I'm afraid, a slightly old figure that I've got. So this is from a King's Fund report of 2008, and I'm sure there'll be more recent um, data that I should look up. But they describe um, the UK government spending £30 million on advertising campaigns to stop people from smoking, £4.4 million on drug prevention campaigns, and nearly a million pounds on the five-a-day campaign to promote healthy eating. Um, and that was in that was happening in 2005 and six, and then more recently, um, the government announced a 75 million pound marketing program to encourage children to exercise and eat more healthily. So, I mean, the the Department of Health, the NHS, has a huge budget, um, but these are still kind of significant significant figures. So, there's quite a lot being spent on these kinds of educational and informational campaigns in order to promote health. These these approaches to health promotion can seen as can be seen as employing what gets called this um, kind of information deficit model. So the idea being that people just don't know what what the health effects of their behaviour are, and so if we tell them about it, then they'll change their behaviour and they'll all be really healthy, and the job will be done. Um, and this has come under quite a lot of criticism from behavioural scientists more recently because it just doesn't seem to work like that. So there's lots of cases where people are quite well informed about the um, health harms of their behaviours, but they don't change them. And often they will um, claim to have a preference to change their behaviour and still not change their behaviour. So it doesn't seem to be enough to kind of just inform people about the health harms of their behaviour. <clears throat> and yet a lot of 
public health promotion still involves a good deal of information provision and education. And there's a kind of question mark about why, why this has continued. Um, there have been suggestions, I think Mike Kelly has written a bit about this, and kind of um, thinking that perhaps there's something just so intuitive about this idea that like, if you tell people this is bad for them, they'll stop. Um, we like to think of ourselves as kind of reasonable, as rational, as reasons responsive individuals, and so it makes sense that, that this kind of information would change behaviour, but, um, but nonetheless, the empirical evidence doesn't really bear that out. There are, of course, instances where people do change their behaviour in, in response to education and information, so this argument only goes so far, but, um, but it's not a kind of... It's definitely not the kind of fix for the sorts of chronic disease problems that we're seeing. <clears throat> so, <coughs> excuse me. Um, okay, so that's the, the first step of the moralisation. I think this idea that we, um, we kind of foster people as being seen as morally responsible by enhancing the extent to which they're perceived as in control and well-informed about their, um, the health effects of their behaviour. The second, step, the second step is this idea that they should change their behaviour so that, that it would be bad for them not to change their behaviour, that being healthy is good and being unhealthy is bad. Um, and I think this kind of comes about through these pervasive public health messages which specify the kinds of healthy lifestyle that people should be engaging with. Um, <clears throat> and and the, kind of the, the idea that people who fail to do this are in some way uh, reckless or imprudent or foolish or um, failing in some way. So I've got, this is where my pictures come up. So this is too small to see, but the caption under it says, smoking isn't just suicide, it's murder. Um, these are the ones more directly related to obesity. So the one... Can I ask where they come from? The, this was, I googled um, health promotion. And I think these came from kind of Pinterest accounts of, you know, excellent advertising campaigns for health promotion, interesting advertising campaigns for health promotion. So this was me sat down for about 20 minutes looking, looking for images. It wasn't a kind of systematic review. So I don't want to suggest that this is representative of all of the health promotion literature out there. But this is very easy to find and it's quite eye-catching. Um, what was also interesting is that looking... For, for images to use for this talk, a lot of the ones that were coming up were, particularly in relation to obesity, were to do with childhood obesity. Um, and this smoking, the smoking one, this is children, it's about the, the effect that your smoking will have on children's health. These ones, the one on the far left, um, is from a French public health campaign, it says obesity starts at a young age. Um, the middle one, the caption, the obesity death rate is overtaking cigarette smoking. And the, the final one, this one, this picture of the noose, which is kind of constructed out of some kind of candy, I think, is again about children. How much, how much sugar does your, children, does your child consume? Um, I think the, the middle one's kind of interesting because it looks like they're trying to hook onto the stigma that's already attached to smoking. They're trying to kind of ride on the, the stigma of smoking in order to kind of have this negative image for, um, for obesity as well. I think there's one, one more. So another one... Um, Child obesity is a life sentence. So this sad child in like a metal cage who can't, for some reason, go swimming. Um, so these are the kind of these are the kinds of things that are out there 
in terms of this like pervasive message of negativity and um, and poor health. <clears throat> and this comes along with um, what sometimes gets described as this aesthetic model of health. So the idea that um, that that being healthy is being beautiful, and that beauty is attainable through this kind of pure, healthy living, this virtuous lifestyle in some way. And we see this now, this kind of burgeoning wellness industry of people doing yoga and sipping coconut milk smoothies in the morning and I don't know what else. Um, So this kind of reminded me, this is a kind of a naff slide, but there was this thing about women laughing over salad. And this is... um, And again, you know, you put into Google image search and you get just these pages and pages. And they're not... I don't... I don't know if they're any or all of them are spoofs, but they, I think they're real. I think these are kind of genuine stock images that you can get. Um, and so this is, this is what it is to be healthy in some sense, you know. This is what's out there. I mean, there's other things you can do that are kind of, this isn't, um, you know, a, a particularly robust methodology, but just kind of typing healthy into Google image search or something and seeing what comes up. And, um, and it's pictures of apples with... Um, tape measures tied around them for some reason um, and unhealthy is just piles of burgers or something like there's, there's these kind of this shorthand for, for healthy and unhealthy and this visual this visual shorthand for it which is kind of interesting um, this goes further there is uh, apart from my kind of slightly clumsy attempts to illustrate it here the, there has been some serious work done on this um, Rebecca Poole and I think Kenny, Kelly Brownell have you know, done some very interesting work that kind of um, methodically goes through and identifies the kinds of stigma attached to being um, obese and overweight um, and the, the negative stereotypes that seem to be at work in that domain. There's also things like... Um, I, was a, I was actually at a comedy gig once and the Russell, Russell somebody, and he... He was mentioning Slimming World and Sins, and I hadn't come across this before, but if you eat, like, I think different food items have different numbers of sins attached to them, uh, which is kind of fascinating that that's the... This is the language. This is how it's talked about anyway. So virtue and vice is infused in all of this health stuff. And then there is some further evidence um, from, from kind of social science studies which uh, begin to suggest this kind of... Mechanistic, this mechanism, this link between um, seeing people as responsible for certain health behaviours and then following that, seeing them as deserving or blameworthy for the conditions that they suffer as a result, and then further from that, how much they deserve social support and treatment for the, the kinds of diseases that, that might follow. Um, so... I don't claim to have established a causal mechanism here between um, information education provision, uh, making us perceive people as increasingly in control and, um, and as having a good understanding of the health impacts of their lifestyles, and then following from that, these attributions of moral responsibility and leading to moralisation, um, all in the context of this kind of healthism that's going on. But I think this is a kind of quite a plausible story that we can tell. And it's enough to be concerned, I think, about um, these supposedly very benign approaches to to promoting health. Um, I think that... Sorry, I do actually have a a visual version of this 
this kind of a mechanism that, I, that I'm suggesting. Um, I think states should try to avoid uh, moralisation and moralising or contributing to the kind of moralisation of, of behaviour and lifestyles. Um, so first of all, it seems to be associated with harms, direct, like direct harms in the case of kind of stigma. Um, and also potentially it's builds in opportunity costs. So if we're using the sorts of health promotion interventions which satisfy our desires to kind of punish the bad and reward the good in this the misguided way that they seem to become aligned in the context of health-related behaviour, then we're missing out on these more effective ways of promoting health. So these ones that are often criticised by public health ethicists um, and commentators. So things like nudges and environmental changes and regulation. So, so there's, there's costs to doing this kind of health promotion rather than these other kinds of health promotion. Um, I also think that this moralisation, so, so what I've kind of described as this social process, paves the way for moralism, for this more um, obviously objectionable use of, of moral uh, assigning of moral values to things, so this contentious application of moral standards and although my claim here doesn't depend on um, health promotion or these health messages being explicitly moralistic um, I only want to say that they kind of contribute to this general sense in which we tend to see health related behaviours as, as kind of good or bad in some way but I think sometimes they do cross this line and they are directly moralistic and I think those you know these um, these kinds of slides are very moralistic this is kind of textbook moralism so a couple of just brief um, oh sorry so finally why, why should we object to that kind of moralism I mean this is uh, this is mostly something that comes from my work in kind of political philosophy and being concerned about the role of the state and what the government should be doing and getting involved with and it seems like um, applying contentious moral standards to people is something that we don't typically think the state should do. So there's lots of theories in political philosophy which insist states should remain relatively neutral um, in relation to the kinds of lives people lead and what they value. Um, and it's, it's overly intrusive and kind of perfectionistic for the states to for states to kind of get involved here and start telling people how they should live. So that's the that's the main objection to something like moralism. Um, so to, to kind of flag a couple of objections um, so one might be well what if moralisation or moralism even is really effective at promoting health what if this is just a great way of getting people to adopt healthier behaviours um, and I think an example of this is drink driving where this has been heavily stigmatised and very successfully moralised and it's made it kind of an unacceptable thing to do in British society, largely. And that has undoubtedly had um, a good impact on the numbers of deaths and injuries associated with drink driving. So one might point to drink driving and say, look, sometimes moralisation is OK. Um, they might also point to drink driving and say, look, sometimes moralisation is deserved. Like, this just is a really bad thing to do. Like, we should, we should criticise it. It should be subject to... Moral, um, moral condemnation. 
So those are two kind of worries. Sometimes it's effective and sometimes it's deserved. So um, I kind of agree with both of these. I think, sure, if something is really, really effective and there are really important gains to be had um, from, from using campaigns that are in some way moralising, moralistic, maybe I would bite the bullet on that and say, OK, like if it's going to save a vast number of lives and it's really, really good and we don't have any other options, then I'm not going to kind of sit on my high horse and say this is unacceptable, we shouldn't be doing this. I'm not, I'm not an absolutist about this. So I'd be reasonably flexible. But I think evidence that some of these approaches to health promotion, um, the moralisation involved in them is effective, uh, the, the evidence... I don't think is well established. I think it's kind of an assumption. I think it's kind of fuzzy. Um, it's not clear that, that such a claim would be well supported. But I would, I would accept it if it was. The second, the second claim that maybe this is deserved, um, well, in a sense, I agree with this as well. So if someone's committing a moral wrong and they are condemned for doing so, there's a kind of moral condemnation of this behaviour, um, that might well be appropriate. But the way that I've defined moralism here is that it is a contentious application of moral standards. So it's not clear that people are doing anything morally wrong. And I certainly think that in the case of the kinds of behaviours that health promoters are targeting to reduce chronic disease, so to do with physical activity, diet, um, these, are not, these are not good candidates for moral wrongs. Um, some people will argue otherwise, and they will use... Uh, various arguments from kind of consequentialist theories or Kantian ideas of kind of respecting yourself and taking care of your body to argue that people have a moral obligation to be healthy. I don't find them very convincing. Um, I think it's those people's job to make those arguments really clear. Um, so, so I so I think that that kind of a, a an objection is a reasonable one, but I don't think it really applies. So I'm sure you will have more. Um, but thanks very much for listening. <laughs>